morning. Today we're returning to our series on the Sermon of Mount, on the Mount. Uh, we've had a short break, and um, now we come back in chapter six. Now the Sermon on the Mount, over the years, has had a lot of study. There are countless books written on the subject. But for me, the Sermon on the Mount is just a, a challenge to our perspective on life. It was a challenge to the first century Jews, and it remains today to be a challenge to us in 21st century Australia. Now, you remember that the Beatitudes start with what's known as, or, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount starts with what's known as the Beatitudes. And it starts with the idea that the people traditionally considered to be on the outer are actually blessed. The poor, the marginalized, those crazy people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I mean, how unrealistic is that? You know, those people are actually blessed. And then the sermon goes on to talk about the fact that we, the people of God, are meant to be agents of change in the world around us. Salt, light. We are meant to be on display so that people can see our actions and give glory to God because of it. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the common perceptions of the day. About half a dozen times he says, you've heard it said, or the people think, but I say to you, and he ups that standard from, you know, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, to don't even be unrighteously angry. It's the same thing. You know, there's that increase in standard. And then he shifts to the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the religious practice. And, you know, I can just imagine all the people sitting around listening going, yeah, yeah, them, they're hypocrites. Yeah, definitely. And he says, don't display your religiousness. Keep it secret. Give in private. Fast in private. And your reward will come from your Father in heaven. And then he shifts. Now, speaking of rewards, people, and starts talking about money. And you can see those nods kind of turning into little frowns here. He's talking about my money. He's talking about my life. Not them, me. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we'll read from verse 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's a bit shocking, really. You know, he's criticizing the religious practices of those people. 
And suddenly he's pointing at us. Every single one of us. I mean, we don't fast in public. We don't put ashes on our head and pretend to be all religious. That's them. But now he's talking to us specifically. Now, the other thing the Sermon on the Mount does is bring together the secular and the sacred, or our religious practice and our daily lives. And I know we all know this because Gav talked about this in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago. So I won't labor the point. But there is a tendency for us, particularly in the West, to separate our religious practice from our daily lives. What we do on Sunday, what we do at Monday night members meetings, is different to what we do 8 to 5 or whenever you work during the week. Those spheres do not intersect in our worldview. Missiologists call this the excluded middle. There's the religious realm, where we believe in things like spiritual gifts and miracles and providence. And then there's the secular realm, that's taken care of by laws of physics, laws of economics, cause and effect. The two don't mesh. But in actual fact, God created the universe. God created those laws of physics. Maybe not the laws of economics, those are somewhere else. But the laws of physics are actually God's creation. He took dust. He breathed life into it. He made us. He gave us a purpose and a place within his creation. There is no such thing as the secular, as separate from the religious. All is God's realm. Our workplaces, our religious practice, and everything in between. But we, the people of God, have been called out of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Our treasure, our values, should not be of this world. But before we launch into that, let's just talk a little bit about what we're not talking about here. We are not talking about being saved by works. We're not earning brownie points by building up treasures in heaven. God, when we die, doesn't pull out a long list and go, hmm, yeah, you did all the tick. No, we are saved by grace. We are saved by what Christ has done. Our actions are a response to that, out of our gratitude, out of our love for God. Sam preached on this last week in the evening service. I'd encourage you to go back and have a look at that um, on the church website. We surrender to God because we are saved not so that we get saved. We are transformed by grace, not by our works. Now, we're also not talking about sensible decisions. We're not talking about planning for the future. We're not talking about putting a little bit of money aside for the water bill and the power bill that you know is coming next month. We're not talking about decisions about planning for the future. In fact, Proverbs 6.6 6 uses the ant as an example. And... Um, points to that as a good example. Plan for the future, as does the ant. Don't be lazy. Don't sit around doing nothing. 1 Timothy 5.8 also talks about the importance of providing for your families, providing for your relatives, looking after those people. So we're not talking about the sensible use of what God has given us. 
Thirdly, we're not talking about asceticism. We're not talking about the denial of self for some sort of spiritual goal. Again, the ascetic movement was kind of like a salvation of works. You know, putting down your natural desires because somehow they are unholy. Somehow your humanity is un impure and unclean. It comes from a, a Greek dualistic view of the universe. And that's not Christian either. God made everything. God made the universe for us to enjoy. So we're not talking about that either. And finally, just to point out, I have not seen, and I may be wrong here, but I have not seen in Scripture a ban on possessions. I haven't seen anywhere in Scripture telling me that I should not own stuff. Okay? So what we are talking about here today is the selfish accumulation of stuff. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, I've lost it. In their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's the love of money, not the use of money, not having money, the love of money. It's when money becomes your focus. Jesus told the parable in um, Luke chapter 12 of the rich fool. Now, you remember the story. This, Jesus tells the story of a rich man whose farms are incredibly bountiful. And he has a massive crop. And he says to himself, what am I going to do with my wealth? What will I do with my stuff? I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll dig bigger ones and I'll put my grain in there and I'll retire and relax and be happy and look after me. It's all about me. At no point does he recognize that all those things come from the Lord. And the parable finishes with the Lord warning this man that that night he would die. And those things would do him no good whatsoever. Where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is talking about the love of money here. He's criticizing greed. He's criticizing the people who depend on, those, on the wealth for their identity, for their security. He's criticizing materialism. As John Stott wrote, Jesus is talking about the extravagant and luxurious living, the hard-heartedness which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people, the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions, and the materialism which tethers our heart to earth. The world tells us we need things to be happy. If you just get that next thing, if you just get that better car, if you just get that suspension upgrade on your um, Nissan Patrol, if you just get that thing, you will be happy. And then you get it, and you're not happy. Why not? Because materialism is a lie. The truth is here. You cannot be happy with stuff. We are created for a relationship with God, and that is where we find our identity, and that is where we find our contentment. You can't build up enough treasure on earth to be happy. It's like drinking salt water. You're thirsty, you drink seawater. You get more thirsty. The same thing. You have stuff, you think you need more stuff, you buy more stuff, you work harder, you sacrifice all sorts of things, you get more stuff, you're still not happy. Storing up treasure on earth 
relying on it for your security, relying on it for your happiness. It's pointless. Nowadays, the text talks about rust and moths and mold. Nowadays, it's identity theft, inflation, taxes, um, recessions, stock market crashes. All those things will deplete your wealth. All those things will cause you to worry. The text tells us, Jesus tells us, that there are more important things than stuff. But the next question here is, what is that? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't ever sit down with his disciples, or they never wrote it down anyway, if he did, and said, this is what I mean by treasure in heaven. This is how it works. What he does tell us is that if we fast in private, if we are faithful in our practice of our religion, there will be rewards from the Father. He doesn't spell out what that actually means. Old Jewish literature tells us that um, what's, what's important is things that are done with eternal significance, things with kingdom value. But again, there's no sort of defined definition of what that is. The Bible tells us things like righteous deeds, suffering for Christ's sake, forgiving one another, being generous. Those things are important. Those things build up treasures in heaven, whatever that means. But they are things you can't measure economically. How you measure that is the impact it makes on other people's lives, the impact it makes on poverty, the impact it makes on restoring relationships. We live in a hurting world. The radical challenge of this text is what are you going to do about it with the things God has given you? Jesus says you can focus on earthly things. You can focus on yourself, your own security. You can try and manage that. Or you can keep your eyes firmly focused on him and on his values and on things that actually matter. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The text moves on then to this kind of odd description about the function of the eye. There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about how it works and what it means and, um, and so on. But to simplify things, I'm just going to demonstrate what this means. So um, I'm going to need a volunteer, but you know, to save all that nudging and you go, no, you go. I'm just going to close my eyes and I spin around and I point at some, oh, Kate Garwood. Completely, completely unrigged. And what Kate's going to do for us is she's going to draw some names out of a hat. Now again, you know that drawing names out of a hat is also impartial, right? So I'll shake it up. Yep, 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 no peeking. Yep. Make sure you show everyone so they know it's legit. Oh look, Ga Gavin Brown. Can I get Gavin Brown up the front here? Okay, it's another one. Don't you trust us? Oh, Ian Anderson. Oh, now that's a, a little shocking. Okay. What are the chances? Okay, last one. Gee, there's so many in there. I, I know, lots and lots, right? Yeah. Who's that? Oh, Joshua Howard. Oh, wow. There you go. Three completely impartial volunteers. Names 
um, drawn out of a hat. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to have a race. Okay, we're going to race up this aisle, across the back of the church, and then back down to here. And the first one here wins this fabulous prize. Fabulous prize. A packet of natural party mix. Okay, fabulous prize. Now, in order to, to demonstrate the point, I've made some, some um, aids, some, some performance-enhancing aids here. So I've got these awesome glasses that actually help the wearer see around, so a much wider range of vision. So I'll give these to Gav, and he'll put those on. And as you can see, the mirrors help him. Can you see me, Gav? Hi, Gav. See? And, and what about over here? Oh, look. Hi, Gav. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, look at that. See, look at that. Gav now has this fantastic range of vision. He can see behind him. He can see all the way over here. Now, here I've got these, these artificial eyes. Look. And we're going to put this on Ian's head. And see, these artificial eyes are so much better than natural ones, right? So we'll just pop this on here. And, and just, just to make sure that they stay on and he gets the full advantage of, of his augmented eyes. Slap a bit of duct tape on, on here. Here we go. Right. Oh, oh, sorry, Ian. There you go. How's that? Yep. All good? You can, you can see? And Joshua, unfortunately, has the disadvantage of having to use his natural eyes. Okay, so can I get you to line up here, guys? Ian, over here. <laughs> uh, just, just follow the sound of my voice. Because, you know, you, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, this is true. Okay, so remember, down here, across the back, and then up to the front. Lollies at stake, okay? On your marks, get set, go. <laughs> oh, Ian, naughty. And there we go. Yay! Now that's, that's a shocker, really. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised, because those augmented vision aids there, I would have thought would have given them the advantage. Okay, you're lost. Um, so first prize. Now, don't forget what I said earlier about looking after your family and relatives, okay? <laughs> it's my son-in-law, if you missed it. <laughs> Cheers. Um, oh, could you just grab a seat at the front here? I know it's, it's a breach of all sorts of Baptist tradition to be sitting in the front row and, and stuff, but yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you in a sec. So, the text talks about healthy eyes, or the English text talks about healthy eyes, talks about unhealthy eyes. The Greek word that we, we translate as um, healthy actually can mean a number of things. Um, Aplus can mean whole, it can mean sound, it can mean something doing its job. It can mean simple or single. It has that idea of focus, in fact. The Greek word poneros, which you've probably heard around the place, it's been used in English in a number of contexts, literally means evil or wicked. Um, the concept of generousness and stinginess also fits within the range of meaning of those words. So, just to um, debrief, how was that for you, Gav? It was 
very, very limited, very limited vision. Is that working? Sorry. Yeah, there it is. Sorry. <laughs> oh, the sound guy. <laughs> there was very limited vision. <laughs> Personal space. <laughs> okay, there we go. Very limited vision. Very hard to see. Very scary, actually. Yeah, very scary. Very scary. But if you didn't get a good look at that, these are two um, makeup mirrors. Um, I can't let you keep this because my wife and my mother-in-law want their makeup mirrors back. <laughs> um, how was it for you, like having to rely on your your own eyes, sort of both pointed in the same direction and stuff? I mean, I did what I could. I did. I did my best. Yeah. <laughs> you, you struggled on it. Was it was terrible? And um, Ian, <laughs> the bag on your head. I mean, it's it's got eyes drawn on the front. Look. I think you need to be a better drawer. Oh wow! Ouch. Mate, don't hold back. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. <laughs> so, to summarize, we had Gav looking in two different directions. As you can see, it was pretty distracting, disorientating. I actually put them on just after I made them. And yeah, you can't see anything. You can't go anywhere because you're kind of being drawn off in two directions. It doesn't work. Um, Ian, with a bag on his head, some might say an improvement. <laughs> the reference there to the light being darkness. The fact is the things of the world can deceive us. Often we think we're walking in the light when in fact we're not. I think that's the gist of this text. Now, Jesus talks about Serving two masters. Now, I know some people have two jobs. Some people work more than one, and that's possible. But Jesus isn't talking about employment here. He's talking about slavery. You cannot be owned by more than one master. It's not you can't work for more than one master. You cannot be owned. Because as Gavin's glasses showed, you will be drawn in two directions. You won't have a single focus. And it's the same when you have two priorities. If you're trying to serve God, but keeping one hand in the world just in case, you're not actually serving God. Your security, your reliance, your identity is still anchored in the world. We need to release that. We need to be focused solely and only on God. You cannot be owned by two masters. Now, I'm sure we've all heard sermons on the subject before. We've all heard about um, worshipping idols and what idols are. Basically, you can worship either the creator or you can worship a created thing. You can walk in what you perceive to be light, but it's actually darkness. Idols can be subtle. Idols can deceive you. An idol might not necessarily even be a thing. It could be your house. It could be your car. It could be your savings account. It could be a thing you point to that says, that is what gives me my security. That is what gives me my identity. It could be something less physical, like your job. I am this person. I am who I employed to be. But it could also be an abstract thing. 
It could be a relationship. You could draw your identity from a relationship. You could draw your security from a relationship with another person. It could be your self-image. And that's the dangerous one. Often we do things for visibly the right motives, but it's all about my image, about my perception of me or your perception of me. And this is a challenge faced by many, many church leaders. They're up here doing this thing and people are looking and you're thinking, wow, what a great preacher, I hope. But those people are doing this for the wrong reasons. And when they get caught, the media has a field day and people see the works of the church and God is not glorified. So it can be something honorable. An idol can be something honorable. It can be a calling. It can be a mission. It can be a position. But if you are doing it for the wrong reasons, there is a problem. That thing has become an idol. It serves you. So how do you spot the difference? It's easy, right? No, it's not easy. What you have to do is ask yourself some questions, and you have to be brutally honest with your answers. Why am I doing this? How would I feel if this thing was taken away? And then you measure your reaction. You think about the way you make decisions. Now, psychologists tell us that decisions are obviously made at a subconscious level, or often made at a subconscious level. We want to do something, we decide to do that thing, and then we make up reasons, nice, objective reasons that we can give to convince ourselves that this is the right decision. Next time you're struggling to make a decision, ask yourself, why am I struggling to make this decision? What are the actual factors that are stopping me making this decision? The other way is to look at yourself as you go through a crisis. Now, Kate and I had a crisis recently. Several years ago, we bought a coffee machine. It's a nice coffee machine. I wake up in the morning and it's already on. I walk to the fridge and I take the milk out of the fridge and I plug it in the side there. I put a cup in there and press a button and one minute and 15 seconds later, I have a coffee. This is awesome. Now, the crisis. A little while ago, it started leaking. The coffee production is down. There's some issues. I had to take it away to get serviced. The coffee machine has gone. And I am left with this. Can we see the crisis here? This, this is a serious crisis. Sorry, I missed that. <laughs> this is a serious crisis. I have to get up in the morning and go to the kitchen while I'm not awake. Now, that in itself is a dangerous thing. I nearly poured the coffee on my breakfast cereal the other morning. That's how bad it is in the morning. I have to do a risk assessment. What is going to go wrong here? What could hurt me? Well, there's boiling water. There's, there's glass and ceramic objects that could get dropped and broken. I could cut myself. These are serious risks. 
And then I have to make the coffee. I have to pour the boiling water. I've got to wait for it to boil first. Then I realize I haven't actually filled the kettle from last night, so I have to go and fill the kettle, put it back on. Boil the kettle. I have to wait while it boils. I then have to wait for it to cool from boiling at 100 degrees down to about 97 degrees so I don't scorch the coffee beans. I have to pour this boiling water into the plunger at great personal risk. I then have to wait while it draws. Seriously, I'm not feeling a lot of sympathy here, people. This is a crisis. So now, instead of just pushing one button, I have this morning drama. So now I need to ask myself, what is the issue here? Why am I upset? Am I upset because of the, the poor trade practices that result in the person who grows the coffee beans in Papua New Guinea getting 50 cents a kilo for his labor versus the person who sells it to me from Coles making 20 or 30 times that much money for not doing anything? Am I upset about that? No. Am I upset about the employment practices where people work in terrible conditions to make sure that I have coffee for my morning cup? No. I am upset because I am inconvenienced. I am upset because my stability, my comfort has been threatened. What is the idol here? Am I upset for righteous reasons or am I upset for selfish reasons? You decide. And just for the record, it's not that much of a crisis. The coffee machine has been sent away. Before you start protesting in the streets, it will come back all serviced and happy under warranty. It's all good. But we do need to look honestly at the things that upset us. We have jobs. We have incomes. We have families. We have homes. We have friends. We have security. We have the privilege to come here in the morning and worship together without persecution. We have these things. And we have a choice. We can look to these things for security. We can look to these things for comfort. And we can ignore the trouble going on out there. That can be our idol. Are we upset by the strife in the world, by the wars, the displaced people, the homeless, the orphans? Or are we upset by potential disruption to our own comfort, to our own security? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. We can choose to fight to protect our stuff. Or we can choose to measure things by kingdom values. Engage in the fights that actually matter. Engage in the behavior that matters. Engage in the behavior that has eternal consequences. Or we can just protect our own little thing. Where is your treasure? Who do you serve? As believers, we are no longer of this world. We live in it, but we are headed for somewhere better. Our values should be kingdom values, not earthly ones. 
how we measure worth should be determined by kingdom values, not economic values. We are blessed with so much. How are we using the things that God has blessed us with? Let's pray. Father God, so many of us have it so easy. We wake up in the morning and have our coffee, we go to our jobs, we earn our money, we pay our bills, and we live a comfortable life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on you and on the things that matter to you. I pray that you would help us to look at the things that you have given us and ask ourselves, how can I use this to further your kingdom? I pray that we would look to you for our identity, for our comfort, for our security, and that we would trust you and only you for those things. Lord, I pray that as we leave here and as we go back to our daily lives, that we will not shift gear, that we will see what we do in, in kingdom terms, that we will not see a divide between our daily lives and our Sunday life. I pray that we would be agents of change, salt. I pray that we would be a visible example to the world, light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. I pray that we as individuals and we as a church community demonstrate your values to the world around us so that your name is glorified. Amen.